know, it's uh, always good. I'm uh, getting a collection of photos of our elders, so I've got one of Ken now. <laughs> I got a great one of Gary Wood dancing like crazy at a park. So uh, probably going to release a calendar soon. The elders of Christ Community Church. <laughs>
But to have a crisis of faith in who you actually think God is is probably the most significant crisis that an individual can have. And what we're looking at today in Psalm 77 is exactly that. The writer, his name is Asaph, is having a severe crisis of faith. Now, in my mind, this is the kind of psalm, this is the kind of chapter in the Bible that really commends to me, at least in my, in my mind, the authenticity of the Word of God. See, if you're writing about it, if you're trying to market something for people to have faith in your deity, you don't typically include chapters where the protagonist himself is questioning the deity himself. You just don't do that kind of thing. But Scripture is never afraid to talk about the real experiences we have. And so all throughout God's Word, you'll have chapters like Psalm 77 that display the real experience that people experience. Right? So, so to me, this is just another one of those chapters that, that testifies Scripture is written by a real God through real people for the benefit of real people who are going to experience this. Scripture never whitewashes the human experience. So this morning, in Psalm 77, we're going to look at three things. Number one, verses one through three, the reality of a crisis of faith. And then verses four through ten or nine, some results of a crisis of faith. And then verses ten through the rest of the chapter, how do we respond to a crisis of faith? So that's how it's broken down. That's how we we'll look at it. The reality of a crisis of faith, uh, some results of a crisis of faith, and how do we respond when we have a crisis of faith? So with that as our roadmap, let me pray. Ask the Lord to bless the teaching of his word and jump right into it. Father, we thank you that there are passages of scripture like we studied last week that fill our sails to full, knowing that we seek a righteous and good God who gives us good things. Think of that passage where it says the, the, all the blessings at God's right hand are available for his people. We're also thankful that you put in scripture Chapters like this that really get to the reality of trying to have a life of faith in a fallen world that fights against that. Thank you that you don't hold back, that you allow us to see the difficulty of even some biblical writers who struggle when things happen in their life that didn't make sense so that we might learn more about ourselves, more about you and how we relate with one another. Would you bless the teaching of your word? Use a frail preacher to communicate great truths. And thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 77, let's locate this. Psalm 77 is what's called a lament psalm. And lament psalms take about a third of all the 150 psalms in the, in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, they, they are, that in itself is very telling, isn't it? That a third of all the psalms are this kind classification or category of lament, in other words, grief, mourning. That's very telling. In other words, God understands that life is difficult. The life of faith is difficult. Scripture has a category for faith and difficulty, and we need to, too. Right? Christianity is not an escape from the difficulties of this world, not at all. Scripture is replete with this reality of exercising living faith in the midst of difficulty, and so we need to have that kind of category. That's why studying these kinds of psalms are good for us. 
Now, you could consider the Lament Psalms kind of the, the, the country western uh, of the psalm types in that they talk about life in really hard places, right? They're talking about things that go sideways all the time, the Lament Psalms do. And if you have a study Bible, uh, you know, a study Bible has notes and all that kind of thing, this would be a good read to look into any notes they have on the Lament Psalms because what you're going to find uh, that, that unlike the country western counterparts, and I don't really listen to that much country western, so maybe they're this way too, but usually they just talk about life in our places, but that's just about it, right? You're wiping up, your dog ran off, and that's all you got. You ever pick up, and that's it. <laughs> the Slament Psalms, however, are different in that um, they also show the strategy of the psalmist working through that difficulty. They show how they come through and get on the other side. Now, that's not always the case, right? You've got a psalm like Psalm 88. It just ends with one of the most depressing verses in Scripture. It basically ends, darkness is my only friend. Right? But again, we'll get that some other time. The point being is God understands difficulty. Well, what's even more amazing is as you look at these lament psalms, like I said, there's a third of them, but psalms are the third lament psalms. You're going to find a dizzying display of diversity of trials and difficulties that all these psalmists, all these individual writers encounter. But you're also going to find an amazing similarity in how each of them got through the challenge before them. So I find that really interesting. That of these, of these probably a third of 150 is... Um, my wife's saying, don't try and do math publicly when you have through. It's a lot, right? It's more than 50. <laughs> this is why we have a stewardship committee, right? I'm not dealing with my answers here. Is that although their situations are really different, uh, a crisis of faith in God, feeling abandoned, having children turn their back on you, all these struggles, the, the, the way they got through was very similar. So what is applicable to Psalm 77? And this crisis of faith when you're doubting God is also applicable when grief overtakes your life. When, when you are slandered against. When people who, who you have loved well and served well betray you. What we learn today will have traction in those situations too. So that's the great thing about studying God's Word the Lament Psalms, is although they're very different, they have the same theme running through it. So with that as our introduction, let's kind of get into this reality of a crisis of faith, looking at verses 1 through 3. And you can tell by the reading of this, this psalmist's words that this is not just a momentary difficulty that happened this week, that's some bad news Monday, no. This is something that is progressively kind of weaved its way into the fabric of his life. This is a deep valley of despair that he's experiencing. Listen to some of the words that he writes here. Just in the first three verses. I cry aloud, aloud I cry in the day of my trouble. My hand is stretched out and it's, it's without wearying. My spirit faints. It all paints the picture of a man who's seeking after God, but God is nowhere to be what a contrast from uh, Psalm 63 that we looked at last week. The psalmist last week was seeking God because he knew God was so good and would answer him. This psalmist is seeking God because God seems so far away and God is not answering him. See, this man's entire paradigm of his understanding of God is being, is being completely turned over. We're going to get to that in a bit. 
But what's interesting, what I love about Asaph here, who authored this song, he's still crying out to God. He is still trying to express his faith, even though it's been so difficult. Right? So if he were in our small group and it was his turn to share, he'd likely say, you know, I just feel like my prayers are never passing the ceiling. Like, can you relate? I've had that experience. Now, I think uh, we sometimes are like Asaph, the psalmist here, and part, in part, his crisis of faith has been triggered because he has a misconception about what his relationship to God is to look like. His understanding about how he as a Jew and Yahweh relate is, is off, quite frankly, and he's hardly to blame because the entire nation of Israel, or majority of them, misunderstood the covenant relationship they were having with God, the obligations that they had with Yahweh, which is the word they use, the name they call God often in the Old Testament. There's sometimes um, exercising faith in God can kind of like being, uh, kind of like being signing up for timeshare. Right? It all sounds great in the presentation until you sign the dotted line and you realize, well, there's more to this than I actually realized. Right? For those of you who have timeshares, you know that. And, and unless you realize that a timeshare really is a whole way of living. You have to schedule your, your days around it. You can realize, I didn't realize I was getting involved in this. Now, it can be fantastic. My point simply is this. Unless you're really aware of what you're signing up for, it can be a big surprise. You need to have all the variables in front of you to make a good decision. And ASAP, like our culture, was shaped by prevailing views in which his understanding of God was not as accurate as it needed to be. So, so for example, let's apply here. In our culture, we can't help but have a strong sense that, that God should be more concerned about my personal welfare than his own glory. Okay, let me say that again. In our culture, in our uh, 21st century American culture, we have a strong sense that God's primary concern ought to be about my welfare rather than his glory. Now, we may not say that, but a lot of times, functionally, the way we relate with them, we do think that's the dynamic that's been going on. So, so if something happens in my life, and I don't see the direct benefit to my personal well-being, that usually ends the conversation. In other words, the variable of God's glory and his greater plans usually don't even make it part of the equation. And so when something happens and I don't immediately see the benefit, I start to question who God is. So the very first takeaway in this kind of crisis of faith is the question, am I seeing all the issues from my own limited perspective, or am I taking into account God's larger plans as well? See, this wasn't just true of, of Asaph and the nation of Israel. This is not just true of us. You see this all throughout the Gospels. Jesus spent the majority of his ministry trying to counteract misunderstandings of what he was all about. You realize that it's not actually until after Pentecost and the resurrection that his disciples really understood what his life and ministry was about. All the way up to those points, they still didn't understand what he intended to do. But, what I do like about Asaph, look at verse 2. Even though there is this deep struggle in his life, Asaph is seeking God in the day of my trouble. I am seeking the Lord. 
Even though this is deep and long-running, he's going to God, and that's a good and commendable thing. He's kind of like the, the man in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, 24, says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I love it. It's a, it's a spoken-handed belief that's willing to be reformed and reshaped by other factors that they might not be aware of. Right? So, so even though he's through this difficulty, he is going to God, and that's a good thing. You see, the, the, the crisis that the psalmist is saying, is, is facing now, is the realization, and how profound this is for, for, certainly for a Jew and any of us, the realization that God may not be who he thought God was at his core. It's a hard realization to come to the conclusion that maybe my understanding of God was not correct. Could this be? And it shapes him to his core. But even in the midst of that, he's expressing his faith in verses 1 and 2. But look at verse 3. Like us, when I remember God, I moan, I meditate, my spirit is fainting. Like us, it's hard because he is a human being. And trusting God is always more radical than we ever could conceive of. One of my favorite narratives that I go to when I experience these kinds of moments of God, this is not fitting my understanding of you, is John chapter 6. <laughs> It's this great discourse where Jesus' popularity in the, the Gospel of John is growing. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands are following him. Every time you read up to that passage and, and the same parallel passages in the other Gospels, the crowds are showing up. But Jesus understands they're showing up because he's giving them breath. He's giving them food and drink. He, they're, they're being healed. They're seeing all these miracles. They're not coming after him or hearing the gospel message of God's kingdom. They just like all oh, that. And so in John chapter 6, Jesus sits the crowd by saying things that were astounding to them, astounding to us, but we're kind of used to it by now because it's in the Bible. But just try and go back to being a Jew. And Jesus says, if you want to be me, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, if you're a modern Christian and you've been around the church anymore, you immediately think, oh, he's talking about communion. But could you imagine being there for the first time and Jesus says, you want to part of me? You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Whoa. Now, at any level, that's, that's odd. That's cannibalism. But particularly for a Jew where God commanded, don't eat flesh with the blood in it. And here's Jesus saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And John said, I think it's uh, verse 67 or 65 of John 6, from that moment on, it had the desired effect. They just split. And I love verse 66, as Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, What about you? What are you going to do? And I love I love Peter. Uh, keep your finger in song. Just read it from Peter's word. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I love how Peter displays for us. How to make sense of, of God when something is, is so difficult. John chapter 6, verse 66. Alright, uh, here we go. Verse 65, and he said, Wait a minute, why am I not reading this right? It's not showing up here. Okay, John chapter 6, verse 66. Okay, here we go. Yeah, sorry. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Here's this, it's 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And here's Peter's response. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Okay, go back to Psalm. 
Notice, notice, Peter's not saying, oh, I get what you're doing, Jesus. Yeah, the crowd were getting a bit big. I thought so too, and they're mostly phonies here. Good job sifting them out. Peter's just as astounded. And he says, you just said some really gross, freaky things. Where else am I going to go? Where am I going to go? You're the only one that has the words of eternal life. Notice, Peter's not basing his faith in, I totally understand what you're doing, I get it, I do the same thing. Peter based his faith in the character of who this man is. He says, I don't get what you just said, but you're the one that has the words of eternal life. I'm not going anywhere. I don't have a choice. Peter displays that. You know, it's in some sense a crisis of faith is going to happen because God is so radically different than any of us are or any kind of thing that we imagine or hope for. It's natural to have a disconnect from what we thought he was to what he really is because he's so radically different. The prophet Isaiah was getting that in Isaiah chapter 55. He wrote this. God says to the people of Israel, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are from the earth, that's how different and higher are my ways from your ways and your thoughts. So a crisis of faith is going to happen because he's so radically different. So, so here it is. We have this crisis of faith for two reasons. Number one, our view of God may be deficient. We just don't understand who he is in his character. And secondly, the process of growth it is, there we go, it is, it is a process of growth is a process of knowing him more fully and more truly, even in his actions and the ones we don't understand. Let's move on. So that's the reality. It's going to happen. It's going to happen because we have this misconception of God because in our culture, we're just enculturated, right? This is the reality, just like it was for Asaph, just like it was for the disciples, the same for us. And so by God's grace, he allows us to be confronted with the difference, because God is not happy to have us love him through some uh, individual or cultural image. God wants us to know him for who he is. So the crisis of faith is actually a good thing, but now let's look at some of the results of the crisis of faith. So, the psalmist, verses 4 through 9, he starts in a good place, but it gets more and more difficult. Look at verse 4, and he's in this kind of sleeplessness and anxiety. He can't even speak. He's just up all night. And in verses 7 through 9, he begins to doubt the very character of God. He starts to doubt. Look at that. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever cease? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious and his, and his anger is a shut up compassion? You know what's interesting in those first um, six verses? You don't have to do this now, I did it this, earlier this week. There are 16 references to I and me. I, me, I, me, I, me. All these, all these expressions. I'm remembering, I'm meditating, I'm considering, I refuse to be comforted, I'm fainting. All this energy is being spent, but it brings him no comfort. And here's the radical thing we're going to see once we get to verse 10. There is a real way in which we can be searching for God, but keeping our agenda smack in the middle of that search. And this is the psalmist is doing it. 
He, he is searching for God, but, but and, and it is no uh, no mistake of these personal pronouns. That's why studying scripture is so important. It's no mistake. You're going to see why in a little bit. But 16 times referring to what he's doing, and it brings him no comfort. There's a reality that we can be seeking for God, but I'm keeping myself right in the center of that search of what I want God to do. So well, let's do this. Why? What caused this crisis of faith? Now you understand the emotional context. Let's talk about the historical context. What caused Asaph's huge crisis of faith? It was the same thing that caused the crisis of faith in the entire nation of Israel. And that was, drum roll please, it was the fall of Jerusalem. Okay, so we're talking about 586, 83 BC at this point. Jerusalem had just been smashed and they are being dragged off by the Babylonians or Syrians? Babylonians. Babylonians, thank you. I always get those two mixed up. So now the Babylonians have smashed them and are dragging them off into captivity. Jerusalem is in ruins. That is causing the entire nation to be challenged in the very core of who they are. So look back at the psalm. The psalmist says, verse 5, he's saying, I'm considering the days of old, the years long ago. Remember that phrase in verse 6. I remember my song in the night. See, what the psalmist is referring to, and I'll point you there in a little bit, is he's referring to a significant chapter in the life of the Jewish people. And you can understand the Jewish people then or now, you need to understand the Exodus motif. Back in Exodus 33, if you want to turn back there, so it's your singer, speaker, and song, go to Exodus 33. That was the most significant point in their history up to that point where God had taken this nomadic tribe of slaves and made them the nation, his people. And God had given them promises of all the things he's going to do. He's going to establish them. He's going to do all these great things. And now, it all seems to be turned on its head. So let me go back there with Exodus 33. So, let's go back and forth here. I want you to see this. Exodus 33. So, remember these words in Psalm, uh, Psalm 77. Uh, has it, is his graciousness lost? Is he never going to be favorable? His steadfast love, okay? Look at Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19, and we're going to jump into verse uh, chapter 34. Verse 19 and 33, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name. The Lord, gracious and merciful, gracious, I will show mercy unto whom I will show mercy to. And then verse chapter 34 and verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Go back to Psalm 77. He's asking, hey, what happened to all that? Uh, what happened to the steadfast love? What happened to your graciousness? What happened to the favor that you promised at Mount Sinai? You see, uh, there couldn't have been a starker contrast from the words given to them at Mount Sinai to what he was seeing happening on Mount Sinai. going to be steadfast and loving us, right? I, I thought your favor was going to be to us. I thought there was going to be graciousness to us as a people. This doesn't make sense. Did we misconceive who you are? One commentator says this. this the commentator says, this is probably what the psalmist is thinking. The cause of all my mental and spiritual distress is that I dare to imagine that God is capable of such a change with purpose to respect to Israel. We might phrase it like this. Somebody saying, well, 
I thought God was going to you know, fill in the blank or whatever we got there. I, there's this implied economy of uh, I do X, God does Y, I did X, but God, what, where's the Y? See, but God is always more radical than we had planned. I talked about that we have all these cultural and personal idols that prevent us from seeing God and who he is. That the Hebrews and the Psalms, Psalmists, it was their physical descent from Abraham and the fact that they had the temple. That was their, hey, we're good with God because we're Jews after all. Abraham's our father. And look, look at there, the temple. But they had forgotten that, that, that the relationship with Abraham, that God so loved the church, was one of trust and dependency and relationship. And that the temple that came after the fact was simply to, to show that relationship between Yahweh and his people. It was never to be a substitute for real relationship. The external trappings of the ritual cult and the physical building of the temple was to display what already existed. It was never to be a substitute for it. But the people of Israel got comfortable with religious actions, and there was no heartfelt relationship. Certainly the kind that David exemplified last week. It was all about, hey, we're Jews, and we got the temple. We're good. It doesn't matter in our heart what we're like. And God says, no, no, no. I love you too much to let you believe that. So our uh, cultural idols are not ethical lineage or ritual cult. We, we just don't struggle with any of those kinds of things. But our idols are just as pervasive to keep us blind from a relationship with God. So our idols are autonomy, right, in our culture, in the self, right? Our culture is hung up on being an autonomous individual. I do what I want, what I want, and you don't have anything to say about it. We live that way all the time, right? Our commercials, just look at our marketing. Have it your way. You deserve a break today. Just do it. It's all about just do what you want, or the self. Right? I don't buy magazines, but you know, you go to the magazines. So remember we used to have World Magazine, then it became People Magazine, then it was Us Magazine, then Self Magazine, right? I mean, goodness gracious. Now, I'm not saying those are bad magazines, don't say that, but my point is, our culture is all around us, and it's about me doing what I want, and it's all about being the self at the center of my life. But God loves people too much to let them stay in their cultural understanding of Him. And He will bring difficulty to shake us to our core, to make us realize that His plans are always more radical. So the question I have to ask is how do we make that switch if I'm having a crisis of faith? How do I get out of my, my culture, which, which you can't? How do I see through and see the things of God? How do I be like Peter who says, Lord, I don't get it, but you have the words of eternal life, I'm sticking with you. How do we reconcile what I want with what I see in my life? We do it the way the psalmist does. And so that's how we respond in verses 10 to 21. This is what the theologian says. I love this. Let me just read word for word. He says, likely, at verse 9 and 10, he's talking about verse 9 and 10, likely, there's a long pause in the psalm. A desperate resistance accounting the cost. I love this metaphor. Like standing at the edge of a cold swimming pool, testing it with the toe and putting it off, right? Right? We've all had that experience. I do it with my family, we do it all the time. Like, oh, what's the only way to do it? Right? Can you wait now? No, the way you do it is you just do this. Right? And you just deal with the oh man! You deal with it, right? So you say, that's what's going on here. 
And in the quantum leap into an icy new world of imaginative faith, it is indeed a turning loose of the old self, he writes. So the transition from verse 9 through 10 is like the move envisioned by Jesus in Mark 8, 35. Whoever seeks to, to save his life will lose it, but the one who seeks to lose his life is going to gain it. Now, I, I mentioned that the first six verses, 16 times, I, me, 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 I, But notice, starting at verse 10, particularly verse 11, the rest of the song, and it's no coincidence that all the pronouns switch to third-person singular, you, you and your mighty ways, you and your wondrous acts, you and your plan, you doing this, you doing that, the search has changed to place God in the center. Now listen again to, to this theologian. It says, I do not suggest that simple prayer and liturgy, liturgy means any structured way of doing things, right? So if you're Catholic or you have Orthodox background, don't think about that. Liturgy is any structured way of doing anything. Uh, I do not suggest that prayer and liturgy are the full scope of self-surrender. But I'm very sure that unless there are liturgic ways, a structured way of doing something, for that move in our lives to take place, we will not make them elsewhere, either with reference to personal maturity or social change. So what he's saying is, I'm not suggesting you just do external things and life gets better, but what he's saying is it's so much more than that, but it certainly is not less than that. It's not less than having a process that helps discipline you in those difficult times. And notice the psalmist here in verse 10 on. He is recounting the amazing saving acts of God in history, the deliverance from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, and this event at Mount Sinai. And that focus on God's redemptive plan begins to change him dramatically. See, this is more than just merely memorizing facts of the Christian life. Right? That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about believing in your life the, the redemptive truth, the redemptive history so that God's word to you is not just an encyclopedia, right? So if you've got an issue, you look at the concordance and try to live in light of that, because more than half of your struggle is not going to be in the back of your, your concordance. Right? So what does the Bible say about four walls and nuclear disarmament and believe you? Nothing! Okay, so I have nothing to say about that. What this psalmist is saying is that you so believe in your life the historic acts of God, this redemptive story that God is doing, that the Bible goes from an encyclopedia to a pair of glasses that you then see everything in life through. Right? So, if the glasses aren't going to help you understand what's a Christian response to foreign policy in Iran, but it's going to help you think through and see the issues through a more biblical perspective. Get that into your soul. So the first thing is this. We've got to start landing it here. First thing is this. Do not rely on feeling, but rely on a system of faith that helps keep you Focus. How could he, the psalmist, have put God in such a small box to begin with? How can he, in whom the mountains and seas tremble at, look at him as a kind of personal genie in the bottle to fulfill his personal to-do list? The psalmist is getting, he says, Lord, your plan is so much bigger than me. You see, a move from the self-focus of verses 1 through 6 to the God-focus of verses 10 through 20 is, is what we all want to have happen. And it's hard, right? This, this song models for us the very move of faith that our culture wants to prevent. Our culture of autonomy and the self wants to prevent a move to a culture of God and His plans. Listen to this. <laughs> the human focus of culture 
I'm not against, there's some beauty of culture, but, but let's say this, the human focus of this self-narcissistic culture is always going to fight the Godward focus of faith. Right? So, you know, I do joke about the selfies, right? I joke about them, and I make them too, right? It's fun. But I want to see that as a whole totality of our culture that's all become about the self fights against the Godward focus of a life of faith. So you need a system of faith, whether it's a Bible reading or fellowship or accountability that gets into my soul to keep me focused on things that matter. Secondly, it's this, and we already touched on most of it. Change the perspective by which you view the situation, right? That's obvious. We're talking about that. That's what Psalms doing. Third, here's the one really important takeaway. Let the covenant promises of God challenge your experience of concrete pain. Let the covenant promises of God challenge your experience of Pain. That's what's going on in verses 10 through 21. Now, let me be clear. This doesn't minimize pain. This is not some empty, positive self-talk, just think better thoughts kind of thing. This is saying, look, I serve a God that is awesome and amazing, right? And that word in our culture, awesome. What does that even mean, right? I, I, I actually prohibited my family from buying that Lego movie song, Everything is Awesome. So like, no, everything's not awesome. Only one thing is truly awesome, and that's God. Right? So the, the idea is that we have an awesome God that is working through history and working in my life. But here's the thing. His, his plans include me, but they far exceed and some of the difficulty is I begin to think his plan is all about me. They include me, they include the nation of Israel, they include all of us, but they far exceed any one of us. And if I'm going to look at what God's working is doing and judge him on the way my situation pans out and judge his character based on that, I've missed it entirely. Think of Joseph in Genesis chapter 15. And I'll land it after this illustration. Where he says to his brothers, after years, years, years of betrayal and, and difficulty and abandonment, he says, I get it. God has a plan. It includes me. It included me being betrayed. It included me being thrown into prison, unjustly accused. It included decades of prison and of difficulty. But it far exceeds me. Okay, really sorry, Joseph. Who's the main character in the story of Joseph? God. <laughs> Who said that? Like, come on, man. Other than God. Do you know who the main character in the story of Joseph is? No, it's not Joseph. No, Judah. Why is Judah the main character in the story of Joseph? Because it's through Judah's lineage that Christ the Messiah comes. Joseph has the only thing he's got to do is make sure Judah's lineage survives. Now, did Joseph get that detail? Maybe not. Maybe he didn't like Judah. That's why O'Brien Benjamin's like Judah. But the whole narrative of Joseph isn't about Joseph, it's about making sure Judah survives. So God's plans included Joseph, but they far exceeded him because he had that perspective. He could reconcile with his family. Well, here's, here's the amazing thing we end with this. 
God would be faithful. God would never abandon his people. We don't know how it turned out for Asaph. History tells us Jerusalem was smashed. They were carried off that captivity. Seven years of exile is very difficult. Asaph, as the individual, we don't know his story. It ends at this, at this point. But he knew at this point that God was always going to be faithful. He'd never abandon his people. He would never cast them off. But he didn't know why. We do. Because one day, God would send someone, his son, and he would be abandoned. His son would be forsaken. His son would be cast off. His son would experience the ultimate crisis of faith in that in the garden. Mark chapter 14, verse 36, 39, where the Lord says, Jesus does not want to die. He said, God, please, let your plan include my well-being, but not my will. Your will be done. And God's plan included having his son, the only one deserving of, of justice, or the only one that was righteous, be crushed. The only one who shouldn't be abandoned to be forsaken so that all of us can have ultimate well Father, we thank you for the richness of your word. We just kind of scratch the surface of uh, ASAP in Psalm 77. But Lord, just in that, we, we recognize there's so much more to our understanding of who you are. Would you be in your mercy kind enough to help us all in our culture, be able to see through our culture your glorious plan and how you will use us in the midst of this world to make that plan known. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.